Well, it is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all the dads. And I'm going to do the thing that most dads hate doing. I'm going to make you stand up. Okay? So if you're a dad and you're in the room, stand to your feet stay, and stay standing because I'm going to pray for you. But let's give a hand to all the dads. It's tough being a dad in our culture. There's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of just a lot of stuff to being a dad here in our day and age. And I want to just pray for you as dads and I want to pray for the families that are represented by all these men that are standing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all of the dads in the room. Thank you for the fact that you are our heavenly father and you're the great example of what it is to be a dad. I pray for a good day for all these men. I pray for just a blessing of godly wisdom as they lead uh, through their children and they lead uh, and minister to them in this moment, whether they're young or they are older. And Lord, I do even pray for those of us that have dads that have, have passed on and are with you. We pray that this would be a great day for those folks to remember those dads who are now with you. Give these men a great day, and I pray that you would bless them. In your name, amen. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a seat. Well, I uh, am a father. I became a father a little over 25 years ago. And uh, we have two kids, and here's a picture of my two kids. Um, Yeah, they look different than that now. (laughs) Caleb, uh, the big fellow there is uh, 25 now, and the little baby Kylie, our daughter, is 23. And this is the moment that they first met. And we didn't even, we didn't curate this photo, it just happened. My wife or somebody caught that, because I'm holding Kylie, she's like one day old, I believe. He gave her a kiss, and then it went downhill from there. <laughs> Literally about 10 seconds later, it went downhill from there. Now, they get along great. Uh, Here's a picture of them now, today, what they look like. This is uh, Caleb and Kylie with my dad, John Thornton, in the middle there. He's the the guy with the hat. Um, And I want to uh, just uh, reach out and give a shout out to my dad. Last time I was chatting with my dad recently, he said, hey, when you're on the platform doing announcements or something, give me a shout out. So here's the camera with the light on. There you go, dad. There's your shout out. Happy Father's Day to John Thornton. Got that out of the way. I'm not sure which service he's watching today, but he does watch us online. He's back in Indiana where we grew up. Uh, anyway, the, the picture of my kids, it's interesting. I remember the day we brought Caleb home from the hospital, our oldest. It was on Mother's Day. He was born in May. And we brought him home on Mother's Day. And at the hospital, they made sure that I buckled or we buckled him into the little car seat properly. It was kind of like, as long as you can get him from here to home, we're out, you know, it was kind of the deal. So we get him home and unbuckle him, carry him inside, set him in his little bassinet. And I remember the thought of, what do I do now? And I asked my wife, do, we have, do I have to stay in the room? Can we go into another room? What do we do? I had no idea. And there was this just wave of, whoa, the heaviness of being a dad. And whoa, this, this was real life, okay? It's getting real now. And it's serious, right? 
And I remember just thinking that and thinking about, you know, all the thoughts that we have in, in, in America, you know, the American dream of you want your kids, you want to do right by your kids, you want them to have a better life than you did. All of that stuff, all that pressure. And I think about our culture, I think not only for dads, but moms, everybody, and our culture and how we, we look on social media and we see these pictures that are just these wonderful pictures of how happy everybody is and how joyful their lives are. And we think about living what I would call a satisfying life, right? That we do well and we're satisfied with our lives. Well, as followers of Jesus, I think that God does want us to live a satisfying life. He wants us to enjoy this life. He wants us to appreciate all the things in life, the blessings he gives us. But often it's difficult, right? Life has ups, downs, curveballs, fastballs, you name it, it's got it, right? And it's difficult to live a satisfying life. Well, we're keeping through this with this theme of David. And David is a character that's just an amazing character in Scripture. And David wrote a psalm, Psalm 131. And I think that he really talks about this idea of a satisfying life. And in that psalm, he talks about what I think are keys to living a life of satisfaction. Psalm 131 is a psalm of ascent, you know, like you're going up. There are 15 of them in the book of Psalms. Ten were written by we, we don't know whom. Five were, I'm sorry, four were written by David to include Psalm 131, and one was written by his son Solomon. And what Psalms of Ascent are is they're, they're psalms that got picked out of the book of Psalms that back when the temple was in Jerusalem, so you're going back a couple thousand years, they would go to Jerusalem and the children of Israel would go for Pentecost or other festivals. They would sing these psalms as a medley as they were going up because Jerusalem is high ground up to Jerusalem and then up to the temple. And they were selected based upon their, uh, their joyfulness, their just kind of high lofty praise kind of language. And then some of them were chosen, like Psalm 131, as a psalm that was kind of to get your head right as you go and meet with God. And today I want to look through these few verses and talk about the keys to a life of satisfaction. Let's read together. If you have a copy of the scripture, Psalm 131, Psalms is almost smack in the middle of the Bible if you have an actual physical Bible. And I'll pick up in verse 1. There's only three verses to Psalm 131, so you can keep score on how we're doing and, and how long we're going to be here as we move along because you only got three, okay? So let's read it together. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. What I want to talk about today is that satisfaction is not gained by external pursuit. What this culture affords us does not bring satisfaction. But satisfaction in life comes through a godly perspective of my position and condition. I want to say that again. Satisfaction in life comes through a godly perspective of my position and condition. So as we look at this psalm together, I'm going to look at just two things that David says in this psalm. And what's interesting is that David wrote this psalm 
that Bible scholars believe on one of two occasions. It was either when he was on the run from Saul, like we learned about last week, the caves of Agilom, or when he was on the run from his own son, Absalom, who was revolting and trying to take his throne and trying to kill him. So in either situation, David is in a stressful situation. And those words don't sound like it, do they? Because I think that David got the idea of what it is to have a satisfied life. Let's look at the verses together and just talk about them for a few minutes. If you look at verse 1, he says, My heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. The idea there is truly I'm not arrogant. I'm not proudful. I'm not arrogant. Eyes not being haughty. Haughty is a word that we don't use a lot here in our English uh, language today in 21st century America. But the word haughty has this concept of having your eyes lifted up. And not lifted up like you're going to worship, but lifted up like you're kind of standing tall. Almost kind of what we would say back when I grew up, strutting, right? You're strutting. I don't think Old Testament people called it strutting. But the idea that I am not even in my physical um, stature, posture, I'm not proud. And we think of pride, really what we need to think about here is the opposite, humility. Humility, that's the first key I think that David talks about, humility, which is the attitude about my position, my position in life, who I am. Pride, I, I looked up the word pride And I found an interesting definition in a Bible dictionary. It said, independence from and disregard for God. Independence from and disregard for God. That's the idea of pride when we think of Scripture. Living a life without God. For those of us in this room that are followers of Jesus Christ, and we have a relationship with him through his son Jesus, through God the Father, with God the Father, through his son Jesus, When you really think about it, we bring nothing to that relationship. We were broken. We were broken in our sinfulness. And we were helpless to have a relationship with God and helpless to even recover ourselves in a way at all from our brokenness and sinfulness. But because God loved us, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross. I love that we have a cross in this room. It reminds us of the fact that he had to come, the God-man Jesus had to come, had to die on a cross, had to be buried, and had to conquer death and hell on our behalf so that we could indeed know him and live a life of satisfaction. Isaiah 55, verse 9. It's after the prophet Isaiah has literally in in a vision, been taken to the very throne room of heaven. And he has seen God and his holiness. And he's writing his his prophecy there in Isaiah. And Isaiah 55, 9, Isaiah is quoting the God of the universe after he'd seen all those things. And he says this, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. God is so beyond us, we can't even imagine. And yet he wants to know us. And he wants a relationship with us. If you're in this room this morning and you've never become a follower of Christ, you've never placed your faith in that finished work on the cross, today can be your day. 
There'll be some folks up here from our care team. After the service, you can talk to them. They can show you from scripture how you can know Christ and become a follower of him. I'll be in the lobby. I'm happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you. But today can be your day. But I want to say this on Father's Day. Some of you in this room probably didn't have the best relationship with your father. Most of us probably did, but some didn't. You may have even heard things like dumb or stupid directed at you from your father or a father figure in your life. And for that, I'm sorry. But what you can know is just because we bring nothing to the relationship with God does not mean we're worth less. It means we are worth it all. He loved you so much that he sacrificed his son. And he did all of that because you were worth it. And the beautiful thing in a relationship with Jesus Christ is we also have a relationship with the Father. Maybe our relationship on earth with our fathers wasn't that great, but boy, we've got the best one, right? A relationship with the heavenly Father. But as we think about our position in life and we think about this idea of humility, we need to have a concept of having been purged of selfish ambition purged of selfish ambition. No agenda, aligning our agenda with his agenda. Purged of selfish ambition. Well, he carries on, David carries on in this psalm as, as you can imagine in a stressful time, running from his son or running from Saul who was a father figure. And he, he finishes that verse there. He says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. He says they're not concerned. That, um, for, that word there, concerned, is really a word that we could use for exercise. You know, physical exercise, but actually, really the idea of being worked up. Getting exercised about something. It's a great check for our own character, what gets us exercised, right? A few months ago, we went back east to visit friends and we went to a college football game. It was actually quite a few months ago, went to a college football game. It was very cold, which we've been living in Southern California long enough that I don't like that stuff. It was freezing. It was like 20 degrees. It was windy. The team that I was there to see that was pulling for was getting blown out. And it was in the third quarter, early third quarter. They were already down by 40-something points. And the ref makes a bad call. And I'm sitting on the home team side. Guy behind me had just had it. And he stands up, and he is screaming at the ref. He's spitting, you know, and you're kind of trying to duck. It's like, hey, man, you know, what's going on here? That guy can't even hear you. You realize that, right? But, man, he was the definition of exercised. He was ticked, and he was worked up. And as we think about our life, think about what gets you exercised. Philippians chapter 4 Paul, who's a writer of most of the New Testament, wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. And in it, chapter 4, there's an interesting corollary to Psalm 131, I think. And Philippians 4, many of you that, have, that know Scripture probably know that passage very well. But verse 8 in Philippians 4, Paul lists a bunch of things for believers to think about. And, and it's in the context of being anxious for nothing. 
And he lists a bunch of things for, for believers to think about. And he says, if anything is excellent or if anything is praiseworthy, think on these things. Number one in that list is whatever is true. How often do we get exercised over stuff that very well may not even be true? You go on social media and people say all kinds of stuff on social media. I don't do social media personally. I've, I've never understood it. But if you do social media, please follow Calvary on all of our social media platforms, okay? <laughs> it's my public service announcement to uh, defray the fact that I don't do that. But please do. But you go on social media and people just spout off about everything. You go into the news and, and they throw these headlines out that when you really read the article or when it really comes out, most of it wasn't even true. Do we get exercised about that kind of stuff? I think as we think about humility, the second thing I want us to think about is being purged of needless anxiety. Purged of needless anxiety. David says, I don't concern myself with great matters. That's stuff that, that's beyond my responsibility. Or things too wonderful for me. It's things beyond my power and ability. Life has, as Jesus said, life has trouble. And we will have trouble. I'm not saying that the concept of humility means that we walk around as if we don't experience anxiety and or stress. But what I know is that David here, who is literally running for his life, is trying to purge himself of needless anxiety. I'm not worrying about stuff that's above my pay grade. It's basically what he's saying. Philippians 4 again, verse 6, says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Don't be anxious about anything. The, the very last sentence in verse 5, right above it, says, The Lord is near. Why can we not be anxious? Why can we give it to him in prayer and petition and thanksgiving? We make these requests known because he is near. And he has it under control. And we don't need to have needless anxiety over things that we can't even control. It's a picture of, or a diagram of an atom I want to show you. Um, an atom is, you know, the basics of all matter, the basis of all matter. Uh, in this room, including us, everything is made up of atoms. There are subatomic particles in atoms. You've got your electrons, neutrons, and then protons, which make up the nucleus. I chose to talk about protons this morning because I think it's a cool name. So protons. Protons are real important. And if that little subatomic particle proton stops doing what a proton is supposed to do, our world will fly apart. And I believe when in Colossians chapter 1 it says that he holds everything, God holds everything together by the word of his power. I believe and in other places in scripture we can find evidence that God is actively controlling everything in his creation to include protons. I doubt that any of you, except maybe for Jason because he was here last night and the 9 o'clock, so he is a glutton for punishment, three times. But he heard, he's thought about protons today. But I dare none of you thought about protons before you came in the room. I also doubt that, none, that any of you woke up at 2 o'clock this morning, boom, wide awake, man, I hope somebody's on that proton thing. Better make sure the protons are doing their thing. I got to get up. I got to call somebody about protons. No. 
We don't think about it. But guess what? God's got it. He's taking care of protons. And we don't need to be anxious about that stuff. We don't need to be anxious about things that we cannot control. He's got it under control. The Lord is near and he's in control. Micah 6.8, it's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It's a great verse to memorize. And the prophet Micah is talking about God to the children of Israel. And he says to them, he has shown you, O mortal. I love how they, you know, set off by commas. O mortal. Just a reminder, you are a limited mortal human being. And the God of the universe is the limitless God of the universe and creator of everything you know. He has shown you, O oh, oh mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? Question mark. Okay. What does God require of me? I bet this is going to be a long list. It's going to be tablets or something like Moses got. Nope. One sentence. Here it is. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So we think about living a life of satisfaction. The first key is humility purging ourselves of selfish ambition and needless anxiety and walking humbly with our God. Let's look at the second key. Second key, we find it in verse 2, where David says, I've calmed and quieted myself. What he's talking about there, this idea of calmed, is this, this word that really has to do with an action. It's not just, I'm calm. It's not a meditative thing. This word calmed literally means to rebehave. Rebehave. In other words, it's not just me thinking about being calm and peaceful, it's actually doing something. It's an action word. I have rebehaved. In light of who you are, God, aligning my agenda with yours, humbling myself, I am going to rebehave. I'm going to change. I'm going to do something. And what's the ultimate result at the end of the verse? says, like I'm a weaned child, I am content. So the second key as we think about living a life of satisfaction is contentment. Contentment. The attitude about my condition, about where I am in life and what is going on in my life. And the first key is we need to be filled with godly peace. Filled with godly peace. That's where this calmed thing is. We've rebehaved. Philippians 4.9 says this, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. What's the first step in contentment? Being filled with godly peace? It's to do what we know is right. So we want to feel right. We want to feel peace. We want to feel calm. We want to feel that satisfaction. But the real key is we have to do something, which is we do what we know is right. We talk a lot at Calvary here about living and loving like Jesus. And the reason we say that is because if we're doing that, we're going to be doing right. And we're going to be honoring our God. And that is how we get filled with godly peace. We do something. Following Jesus is an applied science. It's not just theory, it's applied. Let's look at what he says more about contentment. He says, I've quieted myself. My wife would love it if I were to do this more often. 
I am the uh, talker in our relationship. She's pretty quiet, and I am not. Now, I don't talk as much as particularly one other member of my family. Um, could be a sibling that I have, and I only have one. But I don't talk as much as them. But I do talk. And what this word quieted actually means is to be made nonverbal. My wife heard that last night on a Saturday night, and I noticed for the first time in our married life she was taking notes while I was preaching. Made nonverbal, that'd be great. But the idea is, is if you're doing right, if you're busy doing, if you're rebehaving, and you're not talking, you're listening. And you're listening to what God is doing in your life and listening to what God might be speaking into your life and heart through scripture. And we're made nonverbal. When we humble ourselves and understand who God is and we're looking for this concept of contentment, we can be made nonverbal. We can be quieted. We can listen. Job is an interesting character in scripture. It's a long book about what I believe is a true story about a man named Job who lost absolutely everything. His children were all killed. He lost all of his crops. He lost all of his buildings, his barns. He was a very successful, wealthy man, and he lost it all. And he's left sitting on the ground with boils all over him. He was inflicted with this skin disease with boils, and he's got a piece of pottery, broken pottery, and he's scraping his skin And the only person left in his life and his family is his wife who says to him, curse God and die. Appreciate that, honey. Very supportful, supportful, you know. It's tough. And then Job has five friends who come visit him who say, Job, you know, you did something. You messed up. God's judging you. You did something wrong. That's why all this bad stuff has happened. They're not very helpful either. And then God talks to Job. And God never accuses or finds Job guilty of any kind of sin, by the way. But Job's, as you can imagine, pretty upset. And God, for a few chapters, talks to Job and he says to Job, Hey, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I hung Pleiades, this galaxy that we can see in the night sky to this day? Were you there when I hung that in the sky? Job listens to God and he has this response. Job 40, verse 3 through 5, he says, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Interesting picture. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job got what it meant to be quieted, to understand what godly peace is, He understood, you're the God of the universe. I've had terrible things happen, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth, filled with godly peace. But Philippians 4.9 says that we put into practice first what we know is right, and then the peace will follow. Well, the second thing under contentment is filled with God-placed confidence, not confidence, not self-confidence, confidence in ourselves or anything else but God-placed. It says like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. There's our word. Weaned child. 
Uh, there's a guy named Alan P. Ross. He's kind of a Bible scholar, and he said this about that phrase in Psalm 131. What does that mean? It means to be content without that which used to be indispensable. And interesting? Content with that which used to be ind- indispensable. You think about a child, a baby before it's weaned. The only sustenance it has is that milk with, from its mother or a bottle, and that's it. And it's indispensable. And when they don't have it and they want it, they let you know, right? When, I was, when our kids were younger, I would get up at night and feed them. I actually enjoyed it. And uh, the kid's kind of quiet, you know, and you're just doing your thing. And, you know, you give them that bottle, and, man, they're hungry, and their eyes aren't even open. They're kind of half asleep, but they are sucking it down. And every now and then, for kicks, I'll be honest, you pull the bottle out of the mouth, <laughs> right? And they're kind of half asleep, and you, you wait a second, and they open their eyes. Like, what's going on, man? Let's go. And then you kind of touch it on their lips a little bit, and, and then you pull it away. And, they, you know, they kind of, they're reaching for it, man. It's indispensable. It's probably why my kids have issues to this day. <laughs> my bad. But it's indispensable. They can't live without it. But when they're weaned, it's okay. And, you know, we have things in life that are indispensable. We have to have food. We have to have shelter. We have to be cared for in our basic needs, right? That's indispensable stuff. But there's so much in life, external pursuits that are not indispensable, and we make them indispensable. And contentment here, what what David is saying is, I'm good no matter where I am. I'm hiding in this cave from Saul. I'm good. I'm content like a weaned child. The word content is this idea of being whole. It's, it's actually the word that was used for a piece of ripe fruit in the Old Testament. So it's something that's complete. It's useful. It's whole. And we have this, this concept in our minds about contentment being happiness, joy. It's not necessarily that. It's really the idea of being okay and satisfied with who God is throughout the ups and downs in life. You know, life can do this, right? We can, and we can respond in kind to that with our attitude. Like, oh man, today's a good day, I'm up here. Oh, today's a bad day, I'm down here. I think the life of a believer certainly has bumps, right? But it shouldn't be like this. It should be like this because we understand what contentment is. Philippians 4.13 is perhaps one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? We know that verse. A lot of us that have been around the Bible know that verse. Uh, Christian weightlifters, people who are Christians that are training for a marathon love this verse. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. You know, throw two more 45 plates, I'm going to max out bench today because Christ has given me strength. The context of Philippians 4.13 is set by Philippians 4.12. Listen to what it says. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can be content in any situation because Christ gives me strength. The context of Philippians 4.13 is contentment. 
of being useful, of being whole, of being satisfied with who God is. If you take a look at this picture, this um, actually symbol or emblem, anybody know what that is by chance? Hallmark, very good. The nine o'clock, there was no response. You guys are a little sharper. It's 11 o'clock. Hallmark. Those of you that know me well know, and this is true, I love Hallmark movies. Don't laugh. I really do. I was watching the U.S. Open yesterday. I had to make sure that I recorded the new June wedding movie on the Hallmark channel last night at 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock every Saturday night, month of June, they have a new film, and it's June wedding films. I dig them. So I'll watch that later this afternoon. It's true. But Hallmark movies are cool, and, and, and they're, they're typically unobjectionable, kind of benign. I know that at times, certainly, they have subject matters and things that may be offensive, and we might find uh, biblically not quite right, but that, that's okay. Not everything uh, will align that way. But generally speaking, Hallmark movies are, are just really kind of nice. And they have a pattern to them. Here's the pattern. Okay, they have a meet cute, all right? Guy, girl, meet cute. And they don't have, at first they really don't like each other. Mm, it's friction. Then they're forced to work together on some sort of project, right? And while they're working on the project, they get sparks, right? A little spark. Ooh, all right, they're starting to like each other. Then they have the almost kiss. Oop, they get interrupted. Oop. Mm, no kiss yet, man. Then... They have a misunderstanding. Ah. And they get mad at each other. Maybe one of them even flies off to somewhere else. And then somebody helps them understand it was a misunderstanding. They come back together. And in the last scene, they kiss. Right? It's good. It's predictable. Happens the same way every time. You don't watch a Hallmark movie and go, I didn't see that coming. Wow. It's the same. You think about that, and it's really like being a follower of Christ. We know the end. We know the end. This humility, this contentment, we can have that. Why? Because we know the end. What does David say in the last verse of the psalm? Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Hope, not hope with a question mark and we cross our fingers and we hope it happens. It is a hope with a period, better yet, a, uh, an exclamation point. Hope, it's guaranteed because of Christ, because of a relationship with him, being his follower, we can have that relationship and purposeful life here on planet earth. And when we leave this life, we're with him forevermore, as David said. That's our hope, forevermore. It is the hope. We have the hope. Capital T, capital H, capital E. We want a satisfied life. We need to understand humility and contentment and understand that we have the hope. Guaranteed. What does that mean for us in our life? What does that mean? Satisfaction should make us serve more. Dads, it's Father's Day. Imagine what it would mean if you served your family more, your children more. 
all of us in this room, what would happen if we served the people around us more? What would happen if we served our church more, serving in the kingdom work that we do here at Calvary? Satisfaction should make us give more. Dads, think if you gave more of your time to your kids and to your family, myself included. Think of what impact that would have. Think of what impact it would have if the rest of us outside of dads, all of us in this room, were to give more here at Calvary, giving time, giving effort, and volunteering and doing things, but also just giving more of what God has blessed us with. And I think satisfaction should also make us love more. Make us love our neighbors. Dads make us love our families more, putting them first more. All of us in this room, loving more people around us and living and loving like Jesus in this community so people can see it and see that when bumps come in life, we respond differently because we have the hope. Well, today we have a practical way that we can live this out. We talked about those bikes for South Asia earlier. And out in the lobby, there's the missions area. And we have one of those bikes out there. You can go and see it. And we've set a lofty goal of 300 bikes and five of those electric cycles. It's about $50,000. Think about if you haven't bought something for dad, maybe you could buy a bike or a part of a bike. It's about $150 for one bike. Maybe you can't do $150. Maybe you can put $15 toward a bike. But we'd love it if as many of us that can would buy a bike and fit and meet this goal that we have to help the gospel propagate in South Asia. There's also some practical opportunities for you to serve. VBS is right on our doorstep. It'd be great to have as many of us as we could serving there in VBS. But as we think about the life of satisfaction, we think about the fact that we need to have that godly perspective of our position and our condition in life. I trust that we would live it out this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you have loved us and you have given us a purpose in life and our purpose is to live it out for you, aligning our agenda with yours. I pray you would help us this week to avoid needless anxiety pray we'd be able to be humble. pray we'd be able to be content that we would rebehave. We would change the way we do life in light of you. Help us now as we move from here in a few moments to live for you this week. In your name, amen.